0: This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 228, Chicago. I'm Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. In our trip around the world this month, we land in the home of Wrigley Field, Deep Dish Pizza, and Bears. Not my style, but Chicagoans clearly disagree, and that's fine. This week, we will discuss the city's insulting nickname it's worked so hard to earn, its greatest moment and vilest villain in how they relate, its most successful musicians and their most perplexing song, and its most famous citizen and why you won't find him at my gaming table. We'll start with what I've been preaching. Chicago, Illinois sits on the southern end of Lake Michigan, one of the Great Lakes. Lake Michigan is enormous, the fifth largest lake in the world. Weather patterns on the Great Lakes are as unpredictable as they are catastrophic. The Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum estimates as many as 7,000 shipwrecks have taken place on lakes Michigan, Superior, Huron, Erie, and Ontario in the last three centuries. As you would expect, these weather patterns carry over to land areas adjacent to the lakes. So, if you were to build a city near the extreme edge of Lake Michigan, and then put extremely tall buildings downtown in close proximity to one another... It's natural for pedestrians in the city to experience regular and strong gusts of wind. Hence, the Windy City. But here's the thing. Most large cities are built near large bodies of water. All large cities in the modern day have tall buildings. The truth is, smaller cities such as Boston and Philadelphia are windier than Chicago. Most historians seem to agree that the moniker is a not-so-subtle dig at Chicagoans. Chicago, also known as the second city, i.e. second to New York, has long had the reputation characteristic of many silver medalists. Jealous, resentful, boastful, eager to prove they are just as good as their more celebrated counterparts. In short, the wind flowing out of Chicago is about as strong and consistent as the wind flowing in. Some Chicagoans, and I know a few, might take umbrage at this broad characterization, and if they do, I apologize. I do not mean any offense to any particular residents of the Windy City or to all of them collectively. In fact, a considerable percentage of them, the windiest ones, seem to take great pride in their bombast. I don't hold it against them. Hey, I'm a Texan. It'd be ridiculous of me to criticize an entire culture for thinking too highly of itself and being loudmouthed about it. This sort of wind can get to be a problem, though. Promoting your cause or your culture is not too far removed from promoting yourself. The good news is it's not too difficult to tell a proud member of a select group from a pompous blowhard only interested in himself. Just look at the things they do and say, and see who he's putting on a pedestal. If it tends very strongly to be the windy person himself, you have your answer. You would think the Church of Jesus Christ would be free of this sort of person. After all, the whole point of coming to Jesus is to acknowledge our utter need for salvation and our complete inability to acquire it for ourselves. But as it happens, Christians are not so different from everyone else. We can blow our horn just as loudly as anybody. The difference is the blowhards of the world just keep blowing until they get what they want. Jesus calls us to put our horns away entirely. Talking a lot is not inherently sinful. But if it is simply a way of turning the attention toward yourself, it can be a serious problem. James 3, 1-8 describes how uncontrolled talkers make for worse teachers, not better ones. Matthew 6, 7 says long-winded prayers can be less effective, not more. If your goal is to be seen as wise or important, perhaps you should consider Proverbs 17, verses 27 and 28. One who withholds his words has knowledge, and one who has a cool spirit is a person of understanding. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. Here's an exercise to help you determine whether you've crossed the border between being a gasbag or braggart and being merely talkative. Take inventory of the conversations you start. Do you ask open-ended questions? And if you do, is it to get the other people to talk or just to open the door for your own stories? Are the stories you tell about yourself? Do they consistently put you in a favorable light? Do you seize the first pause in the conversation so you can chime in? And while you wait for the pause, are you paying attention to the other person or just rehearsing your own speech ahead of time? Self-promotion has no place in the body of Jesus Christ. Any credit you may think you have earned is either something Jesus empowered you to do or else something not worth bragging about. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 31, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you spend an appropriate amount of your conversation talking about what Jesus has done for you, I suspect you won't have enough breath in your lungs to brag about yourself. This is what I've been reading. Eric Larson wrote Isaac's Storm, the book about the Galveston hurricane featured in episode 220, Floods. It's a great book, and Larson is a great author. So it was a no-brainer for me when I heard he had written a book about the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. The Devil in the White City is a study in contrasts. Daniel Burnham was the architect largely responsible for the construction of the fairgrounds, an amazing display of white buildings facing Lake Michigan, featuring Mr. Ferris's amazing wheel, proclaiming the beauty and greatness of the city to the entire world. Dr. H.H. H. Holmes, or whatever his real name was, built an enormous hotel near the fairgrounds with borrowed or downright imaginary money, drew travelers in by the score, and murdered them. If all this sounds familiar, thank you for being a loyal listener. Burnham, the Ferris Wheel, and many other amazing events and personalities of the day came up in Episode 62, Good News. They all feature prominently in 1893 World's Fair, a game that we still play and love. Holmes' story came up during Episode 146, Murder. We have a game that's based on the murder castle he built, complete with trapdoors, slides, hidden passages, torture devices, and who knows what else. The fact that I've never been to Chicago has nothing to do with H.H. Holmes, by the way. I enjoyed The Devil in the White City very much. It was on my list of top ten books I've read in 2023 so far. Apparently it's being adapted as a miniseries, with Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio involved in the production. Keep your ear to the ground for that. If it ever gets released, it might be worth a look. But whether it does or doesn't ever get streamed to a device near you, it's a fascinating commentary on human psychology. The beautiful veneer on the outside may be shrouding the vilest of evil on the inside. What you see is not always the totality of what you get. I don't mean to pick on Chicago particularly here. The same could be said of any society, or any human for that matter. I'm sure there's an image you are trying to present to the world. An ideal you. Stable. Successful. Confident. Confident. Dependable, intelligent, talented. But underneath, if you're anything like me, there's a seeding pit of dysfunction, doubt, and self-loathing. You know yourself far too well, if you're being honest, to be anything less than horrified. Are you a hypocrite, then, when you call attention to your strengths and accept acclaim for your successes? Not necessarily. It depends on whether you think the negative aspects cease to exist when they manage to avoid the spotlight. Humility is key here, and I don't mean making a spectacle of your shortcomings, nor do I mean saying silly things like, hey, I never said I was perfect. I don't know about you, but I don't have a host of people lined up at my front door accusing me of being perfect. I mean being comfortable with admitting to your shortcomings and discussing them with a view to correcting them. One of the blessings of being in a fellowship of believers is the ego break it provides. That's not always seen as a blessing, of course and as a result, it does not always have the results God would like, and we wind up clinging stubbornly to our worldly ways instead of doing what Ephesians 4.15 requires. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is, Christ. The notion of love we see in the world often avoids this situation. But godly love is all about pursuing the welfare of the ones for whom we claim to care. You need people in your life who will try to restore you in the spirit of gentleness, Galatians 6.1. In fact, you should be seeking out correction by confessing your sin to your brethren, James 5.16. Dragging the skeletons out of your closet and rattling them around for all to see won't be the most pleasant exercise you've ever had. But it might be the most productive. As they say, sunlight is the best antiseptic. this is what I've been hearing yes it's that time again time for Hal to talk about how the music of his youth is far superior to any so-called music in the modern day. Hey when it stops being true I'll stop saying it. I grew up in a time when the BGs, Earth Wind and Fire, Queen, the Doobie Brothers, Dolly Parton, Bruce Springsteen, and Michael Jackson were all on the same top 40 charts played on the same top 40 stations. My point is not that these musical acts were individually better than anything being recorded today, although obviously they are. My point here is more regarding the variety of the musical stylings. Variety really is the spice of life, especially with music. And that brings me to Chicago the Band, an amazing ensemble that produced some of the most unique sounds ever to top the charts. And they must be doing something right. They formed in 1967, and they've been making music pretty much nonstop ever since. That's more than half a century, in case you don't want to do the math. The nasally tone of Peter Cetera's voice, combined with my legendary inability to understand song lyrics, made it difficult for me to make out some of the lines in some of Chicago's songs. Well, make that most of the lines in most of the songs. But the line 25 or 6 to 4 is easy to make out. It's right there in the title of the song. Literally, a deaf person could get it. And for more than 40 years, I had no idea what that line meant. I didn't care. It was a great-sounding song. That's all that mattered to me. That's not a great policy for choosing music to listen to, by the way. This episode gave me an opportunity to do 15 seconds of research and figure out once and for all what the song was saying. Turns out, it's about writing music in the middle of the night. Waiting for the break of day. Searching for something to say. Flashing lights against the sky. Giving up, I close my eyes sitting cross legged on the floor, twenty five or six to four. Staring blindly into space, getting up to splash my face, wanting just to stay awake, wondering how much I can take. Should I try to do some more? Twenty five or six to four. It's three thirty five in the morning, twenty five minutes to four. Or maybe twenty six. If the song had been called Either Twenty Five Minutes or Twenty Six Minutes Before Four AM, frankly I'm too sleepy to read my clock, I would have picked up on the lyric earlier, but I can see how that would be tough to put to music. As someone who faces deadline pressure in a field that is somewhat creative, I can appreciate that ideas don't always come on schedule. The great thing about 25 or 6 to 4, though, is that the struggle to find the idea actually becomes the idea. You stress out about how a song is eluding you, and boom, the lyrics magically appear. I've taken to looking at prayer that way, at least certain kinds of prayer. The disciples asked Jesus to increase their faith in Luke 17.5. Obviously, faith is something we acquire for ourselves. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10.17. But given the nature of Jesus' response to the request, it's entirely appropriate for us to pray for even more faith, for the work of the Spirit to have deeper and fuller impact on our thoughts and our behaviors. James one five tells us, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. This echoes Jesus' words in Matthew seven seven: Ask and it will be given to you; seek and you will find; knock and it will be opened to you. Most notably in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew six ten: Your kingdom come; your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The request is for God's rule to be manifested in our own lives in the same way it is in heavenly realms joyfully, completely, and immediately. Notice what happens when you pray these prayers. When you pray for increased faith, you're leaning on the Lord to provide it, an action you cannot witness. Your request for faith produces faith, simply because you asked for it. It's the same with wisdom. When you ask for wisdom, you necessarily trust that the giver of wisdom will give, unless you're the double-minded man James warns about. Asking God's rule to dominate your life is itself opening the door to God's rule. That's answered prayer. You're sitting cross-legged on the floor in the middle of the night, begging God to be the answer to your prayers. And because you ask in faith, you get the answer. Your request for faith allows God to give you more faith. Your request for wisdom allows God to give you more wisdom. Your request for commitment allows God to give you more commitment. You should follow up with actions, of course. But praying puts you on the right path. Think about that the next time you're wide awake at 3.35am. This is what I've been playing. The Hammonds family rules out a wide variety of games on thematic grounds. We don't steal cars, we don't rob banks, and we don't run large-scale criminal enterprises. It's not because we think games that go in those directions are inherently sinful. It's because we don't want to put ourselves in position to pursue evil interests, even in a world of make-believe. We'll bend the rules from time to time, especially if the theme is easy to ignore. But when it comes to a game like Scarface 1920, in which you play the part of Al Capone or some other Chicago gangster trying to run a wide variety of illegal operations and avoid being nabbed by the feds, it's not too difficult to look for some other game to buy instead. It's a fine line to walk, I admit. I love Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, for instance. And when it comes down to it, that film is about bank robbers eluding the law. But Butch and Sundance is not a celebration of crime. It's a commentary on how people become trapped by their past and can't move forward into the future. Crime is a poor option. It's just the only option they see open to themselves. And they die as a result. Paul Newman and Robert Redford reunited a few years later in The Sting, another movie about criminals. But these crooks are cheating another crook, one who has taken advantage of the established order and is free to pillage and murder at his leisure. That doesn't legitimize the wide variety of sin the boys commit, not in my mind anyway. But it does elevate the cause of justice, as most of us would define it. You make the call for yourself at your gaming table. Personally, playing the role of a gangster, maximizing my wicked ways, contributing mightily to the corruption inherent in the system, perceiving forces of law and order as the enemy, That's not a headspace I want to occupy. Perhaps it's not exactly the same thing as celebrating evil, but it's too close for my taste. It's a wicked world out there, and not just in Chicago. Whoever said crime doesn't pay wasn't watching the right criminals. Crime pays very well for a lot of people, and when they get caught, the punishments, if any, don't seem to be adequate deterrents. Recidivism is high. Good moral examples are hard to come by. Criminal behavior is openly promoted in some quarters as an appropriate course of life. When you live your life by the rules and find yourself denied the things you want and deserve, and you see others breaking rules left and right and benefiting mightily from it, you may question your life choices, even your faith in God. It's like Asaph writes in Psalm 73 verses 1-3, through God certainly is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked." Quote. The short-term success of the wicked is a microcosm of humanity at large. It's the Garden of Eden, lived out day after day. God promises us an elevated lifestyle, fellowship with him, life everlasting. But Satan has the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It looks good. You've heard it tastes good. And even if you manage to steer clear of the actual act, you can't help wondering what you're missing out on. And maybe you resent God a little. That's when you need to remember who you are. You're a citizen of heaven. The things of earth, by their nature, have limited appeal. You value something greater, something higher. The more you set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, Colossians 3.2, the more you will value them. The more you admire the things of the world that John references in 1 John 2, 15-17, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life, the more you will love them and eventually seek them out. Is pretending to love sin a sin? Perhaps not. But actually loving sin is. And every step down the wrong road makes the next one easier to take, each one pulling you further from heaven, further from God. Don't look at Scarface. Look at the scars on your Savior's hands, feet, and side. Think how much he loved you, how much he still loves you. He's the one you want to imitate. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also, check out the Hal Hammond's channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammond's Citizen of Heaven, signing off.